Now I don't want to oversell it, but this will change your life. My people, welcome, Stulinium Radio, Jonathan Stewart. Today, for your consideration, the S&P 500. It's not a car race. And the winner of this year's S&P 500 is Tony Stewart. No relation. It's not a fuel additive for your car. Pour a little S&P 500 in your gas tank every 10,000 miles and your car will thank you. If you have a talking car. No, it's none of those things. It's an index. An awesome index. One of the most widely used indexes in the U.S. markets. So here we go. It's time to talk about the S&P 500. The S&P 500 index is one of the most commonly referenced equity indexes in the United States equity markets. S&P stands for Standard and Poor's, and they are the company that developed and maintains the S&P 500. It's the best single gauge of the U.S. equities market, according to Standard and Poor's website, and probably a lot of market participants as well. As the name implies, the index is composed of the stock of 500 U.S. firms, and most of them are really big companies. In fact, if you set a list of the 500 companies with the largest market capitalization next to the list of the S&P 500, almost all of the names would be the same. Last episode, I mentioned that I'm not a huge fan of using the Dow Jones Industrial Average to report daily market performance in the U.S. markets. That's because the Dow only tracks the stock of 30 super-huge mega-companies. The S&P 500 provides a more broad view of the U.S. stock market because it includes 500 different companies. However, it is important to note a couple of limitations regarding this more inclusive index. First, all of the Dow 30 are included in the S&P 500. So there will naturally be some positive correlation between the movements of the Dow and the S&P 500. This is because all of the stocks I mentioned in the last episode, ExxonMobil, Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, companies worth 200 to 300 billion dollars, they are all included in the S&P 500. However, the S&P 500 also tracks 470 other companies. Really big companies like Google, Amgen, Apple, and UPS, who have a market capitalization in the 50 to 80 billion dollar range. Some slightly smaller companies like Starbucks, Southwest Airlines, and Xerox with market caps of 5 or 6 billion. And even some slightly smaller companies like Office Depot, E-Trade, and Liz Claiborne, whose market caps range from $200 to $500 million. But that's about as small as it gets in the S&P 500, $200 million or so. 
This is probably a good time for me to acknowledge that most of these 500 companies are still really big companies. However, the fact that there are 500 of them means that the S&P 500 provides a better indication of how the broad U.S. market is performing than the Dow 30 does. Okay, so the S&P 500 is an index, and it gives us a sense of how the broader U.S. market is performing. What else is it good for? Well, a lot of money managers use the S&P 500 as a performance benchmark. A performance benchmark allows a mutual fund manager, a student-managed fund, or even an individual homegrown stock picker to gauge their performance. The benchmark does this by providing a point of comparison. Let's say that we believe that the S&P 500 behavior is representative of the average U.S. equity performance for a given year. Some people will argue that it is representative of the really big companies in the U.S., and that's probably true. So I'll talk more about that later. But right now, let's say that we think the S&P 500 is representative of the U.S. market. Let's assume that you manage a mutual fund. Your fund earned 6% for the year, and you benchmark against the S&P 500. So how did you do? Is 6% pretty good? Well, it depends on the year. In 1992, the S&P 500 grew by 7.6%. So if you earned 6%, you lagged your index, or benchmark, by a little more than 1.5%. Now, in a different year, 6% might have been a pretty nice return. Take 2002, for example. In 2002, the S&P 500 declined by 22%. So if you made 6% in 2002, you killed your benchmark. While the average company in the S&P 500 lost 22%, you made 6%. That's a 28% difference, and you will probably be getting calls to do interviews for Fortune and CNBC. Nice work. Now, what if you put up a 6% return again the next year, in 2003? Well, that would be bad news, because in 2003, the S&P 500 was up over 28%. So in 2003, a 6% return looks pretty anemic. But that's how investment performance is typically evaluated, relative to a benchmark. And a lot of people use the S&P 500 as their benchmark. The student-managed fund here at Abilene Christian University uses the S&P 500 as its benchmark, and our students are proud to say that they have outperformed their benchmark in seven of the last eight years, sometimes by quite a wide margin. Other money managers report their performance relative to their benchmark as well. Most mutual funds will report their performance in comparison to their benchmark for the most recent year. They typically also provide return performance for the last 3, 5, and 10 years as well. This allows an investor to get a sense of the fund manager's historical performance. If you see a fund manager who has outperformed their benchmark for the last 10-year period, you may believe that they are onto something and have an investment strategy that has stood the test of time. On the other hand, a manager who has underperformed their benchmark in the long run is not providing a compelling case for you to invest in their fund. If they underperform the S&P 500 for 10 years running, you would have been better off just owning the S&P 500, right? Hmm, 
If only there was a way for us to own the S&P 500. Well, my friend, it turns out that you can own the S&P 500, if that's what your heart desires. In fact, there are several ways for you to invest in a way that will mimic or at least track the performance of the S&P very closely. The most obvious way to mimic the S&P 500 would be to buy the 500 stocks in proportions that are equal to those of the index. Now, the S&P 500 is a value-weighted index, so that means that the bigger companies make up a greater proportion of the index. So to imitate the index, you would have to buy more of the bigger companies and less of the smaller companies. Today, that means you would invest about 5.5% of your money in ExxonMobil because they are the largest of the 500 firms, and then you would invest about 1% of your funds in companies like Intel and Abbott Labs, and eventually, when you got to the 500th stock on the list, you would invest about 1 100th of 1% of your funds in companies like Liz Claiborne and Jones Apparel. Wow, what a hassle. Buying 500 different companies with individual transactions? That would be brutal. Also, we'd have to pay transaction costs on 500 different trades. That's going to add up and eat into our investment performance. Plus, one one-hundredth of one percent of most people's portfolios is going to be a relatively small number. I mean, even if you have a million-dollar portfolio, one one-hundredth of one percent is only one hundred dollars. Buying one hundred dollars worth of stock when transaction costs are ten to twenty dollars might not be a smart decision. There has to be a better way. Well, actually, there is. Back in 1976, the good people at the Vanguard Group helped us celebrate our nation's bicentennial by offering a mutual fund that mimicked the S&P 500, ticker symbol VFINX. The way this works is that thousands of individual investors invest their money in the fund, and Vanguard takes this huge pool of money and buys the S&P 500 stocks in the same proportions as the index. Over time, several other mutual fund companies imitated Vanguard and offered their own S&P 500 funds. Today, there is an even easier way to own the S&P 500, exchange-traded funds. In the early 90s, the American Stock Exchange introduced the S&P Depository Receipts, ticker symbol SPY. The shares of this exchange-traded fund are known as SPDRs, S-P-D-R, for S&P Depository Receipts. See what they did there? And you can buy and sell them just as easily and for the same transaction cost as any individual stock. These shares have been wildly popular among investors. In fact, there are something like $77 billion of spiders in the market today, making them the largest exchange-traded fund. Additionally, they typically trade about 200 million shares per day, making them the most actively traded shares in the U.S. equity markets. The price of spider shares is equal to the current level of the S&P 500 index divided by 10. 
So if the S&P 500 is at 840 points, the spiders would trade for $84 per share. Now, spiders are just one of many different types of exchange-traded funds that are available today. In fact, exchange-traded funds, or ETFs as they are often called, have become wildly popular in recent years. So popular, in fact, that we probably need to dedicate a future episode to ETFs. Thanks for tuning in to Stulinium Radio. I hope that you'll subscribe to my podcast on the iTunes Music Store and tell your friends about Stulinium Radio. And now you can even download us to your iPhone through the iTunes Wi-Fi Store. Man, back before the Stulinium, we had to listen to our radio on an actual radio. Even if the market is getting killed, it's an awesome time to be alive. If you have any questions, requests, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to me, stulinium at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon. And don't forget to check out my website, stulinium.com. Next time I'm going to talk about indexing as an investment strategy. It should be strong, so make sure and check back soon. Until next time. Jonathan Stewart, Stulinium Radio.